Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, May 15th, 2023, the 845th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to this podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's start the week with a little humor from Australia. This comedian's name is James Donald Forbes McCann. A lot of names. And it's worth remembering while you listen to this that Australia had some of the strictest COVID policies in the world. We saw stuff about quarantine camps. We saw that people were not allowed to leave their buildings or their neighborhoods. 
And they had a particularly strong vaccine push and were very harsh toward the unvaccinated. It seems like maybe they're coming to grips with what all of that actually was. I regret having gotten the vaccine. I really regret having gotten the vaccine. I'm sure it's fine, but I just wish when the state told me to do something, I'd be the sort of person who said no. But it turns out I'm the sort of person who says, fine. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. You're telling me it's important. Okay. I, and all they had to do was say, you won't be allowed to go into pubs for like a month. And I was like, put it in me. That's what I'm upset about is that I had a principle temporarily. Oh, if I was in Nazi Germany, I would have stood up to the regime. I wouldn't stand up to not being able to go to a pub for a month. I would have been like, Anne Frank, she's in that attic there. I saw her. It doesn't matter what the point of principle was. The point is I would have been a chill. And that I have to live with that for the rest of my three or four more years before I have a heart attack. Now, when I was in L.A., I was a big fan of stand-up comedy and had a bunch of stand-up comedians who were friends of mine. I still have some of them. But I'm not sure I've heard an American comedian be that brave so far about the vaccine, that honest. And yes, it's imbued with humor. And he says that he's sure it's fine. But he cancels that out at the end, obviously, when he says for the next three or four years until I die of a heart attack. Hopefully... That doesn't happen to this person who I'm sure is lovely and at the very least is funny and fairly honest. But regardless, it's so great that he's saying this, this very thing, the way he's saying, because this is the right thing to be saying. A lot of people took the vaccine because they thought it would make their lives easier. They were told that life would go back to normal. They wanted life to go back to normal. Now, they made that decision on that basis after a year or so of being told that life would go back to normal and life not going back to normal at all. And some people who took the vaccine realized that while they were doing it. They knew they were being lied to. They just thought maybe this time it will all go away. Maybe the finality of this vaccine, once I'm vaccinated, I can't get sick. That is a final action. That makes it so we're all protected. And once we're all protected, then it's over. Then we can go back to normal. That made sense to people, or at least they convinced themselves that it did enough to go take the vaccine and cross their fingers and hope for the best. Those are the best of the vaccines. They just were sick and tired of all of it. They thought it would stop if they did this thing. And now they've realized that was wrong and they regret their decision. And while they're still telling themselves that everything is probably going to be just fine, that is always tinged with a bit of fear. They did something that may well be irreversible and have realized it was a bad decision. They've realized that these vaccines are in fact dangerous, did not accomplish anything and could not have accomplished anything and were also totally unnecessary. But those people are not the majority of vaccines. The majority of vaccines still want to convince everybody else that they were the smart one the whole time and made the right decision at the time and that it has turned out wrong. The worst ones still believe that it was the right decision at the time. 
It's still the right decision. And all of the facts in the world support that none of the facts in the world suggest otherwise. Now, it's great to be one of those good vaxies who just kind of was going along to get along and realized that what they did was wrong and they've potentially endangered themselves and their future health, maybe their ability to reproduce. Sad, but true. Not that many people, though, even among the good vaccines, have gone to the point where they understand what they actually did and what that means about their character and where they were at that point. And I'm not saying that to beat up on these people. I'm not saying it to judge them. Certainly not now, just at the time, because a lot of people have changed their positions and have grown in their strength of character since making that mistake and good on them. But I imagine very few people are really taking the deep introspective look that this comedian is expressing which is when you achieve the realization and the understanding that if you were back there in World War II Nazi Germany, you absolutely would have turned in Anne Frank and everybody else if the regime asked you to. That was one of my greatest realizations throughout 2020. I was discussing this over the weekend, actually with one of those L.A. comedian friends of mine. I was talking about the moment in October 2020 when I was banned from Instagram. I thought surely at that point, these people will all understand that this really is a threat to free speech in this country. I knew people disagreed with me. I didn't care about that. You're not going to please everyone all the time. If you are pleasing everyone all the time, you're probably doing it through some sort of dishonesty or fraud. But I was okay with people disagreeing. I was okay with people getting mad. I'm not okay with getting banned for what I'm saying when what I was saying has now turned out to be all or mostly all true, especially directionally. Obviously, timing and stuff, that's off. You're not going to get every detail right. You're not going to be 100% correct in analysis or projection. But we were on the right side of every single major issue. And that's about as well as you can do. When I got banned, I expected that some of the people I was very close with who have big platforms, millions of followers on Instagram and Twitter and whatever other platforms that might flip a light on and they would realize, wow, really? I don't agree with him, but he's getting censored. He's getting banned off Instagram for talking about COVID and the election. Well, that's not right. We're in a much different society than I thought we were in. But nope, that was not the response. The response was, well, yeah, man, but you knew you shouldn't have been saying those things. At that point, I knew those people cannot be trusted and are not my friends. And I proceeded accordingly. I realized immediately that if this situation continued to get much worse, if we got to that point that Germany had reached during World War II, these people absolutely would turn me in and they wouldn't ascribe it to their own personal weakness. They would describe it as an act of strength. Sure, they knew it would hurt me, but I was one of the bad guys by then, don't you see? So what they were actually doing was tough love as far as I was concerned, and they were only doing it to protect everybody else from the things that I was saying. 
So they were the really good people. It's tricky, isn't it? That false reality, the total inversion within it, where those turning in their friends and family and neighbors to the corrupt totalitarian regime, those are the real heroes. The people speaking out against the regime, those are the bad people. That clip right there, that's how it should be done. Cheers to that Australian comic, James Donald Forbes McCann, if you want to check out his stuff. Now, I don't watch much TV these days. First, because I don't find it to be a valuable use of my time most of the time. Second, because there's virtually nothing good on to watch. And third, because I don't really have much of an appetite for propaganda. But I do like to watch Succession on HBO. I've talked about it before on this podcast last year during the last season. And Succession is very interesting, first of all, because it's pretty well produced and well written. It is very interesting at minimum. And the political perspective is obviously coming from, you know, quote unquote, the center left, where they're full on leftists, but they try to be even handed about things from a leftist perspective. It's annoying at times, but it's not overbearing. So succession in general, if you don't know, is about an aging media magnate whose children are vying for their position in the line of succession after his eventual death. Now, if you're a succession fan and you haven't watched last night's episode yet, you might want to pause and conclude the podcast when you have watched that episode. And if you're a fan who hasn't started this season yet, spoiler alert to you as well. I am going to spoil critical moments of this season in this conversation, just so you know, it's not going to ruin the show for you. It's just going to ruin some surprises, but those surprises have been widely reported in the media for weeks now. So I don't really feel all that bad about it. So the show is basically modeled on Rupert Murdoch and his kids. It's kind of a parallel to that. And the media magnate is this overbearing, rough, tough, deal-making, sometimes swindling, ruthless businessman who has his hands in all sorts of things. He has his media empire. He has cruise lines. He has theme parks. And he's getting on in his years and maybe not as in touch as he used to be with what the public needs from their media empires, the effect of technology, etc. Now, his kids are all very typical millennials who are spoiled, rich kids. They all want power. They all think they're entitled to power, but none of them can make good decisions in really any area of their lives. And not only are they vying for a position in the line of succession with their siblings, they're also trying to get their father to leave power and hand everything over to one of them or some combination of them. So earlier this season, the father finally passes away and the children have to figure out how to divide up responsibility. And that's a bit of a mess, of course, before their father dies this season. He says to them all in no uncertain terms, you are not serious people and they are not serious people. 
Their relationship lives are a mess. They have no problem betraying the people closest to them in their lives. They have all the money they could ever possibly want, but don't have anything good to do with it. So they try to find projects that will make them seem like they are geniuses. And they're all completely consumed with trying to win their father's love and respect and eventually take over the business in full. Now, this entire season is set in the lead up to a presidential election in America. And during last night's episode, the three primary children are at the headquarters of the media empire, ATN headquarters, as the network rolls out their election night coverage. Now, it's a very close race between a Hispanic sounding Bernie Sanders type clone, but young and hip and a white populist middle-aged guy who is routinely called a fascist. And the kids, well, two of them at least, worry that he is going to destroy America. It's going to become a violent and scary place where people are not welcome. We're not going to have an inclusive society anymore. You know, because wanting to look out for the people of one country and the interests of those people over the interests of of people who are not from that country is fascism. It's not the joining of the state with the corporate in order to take over everyone's lives and eventually control the whole world. It's not that. It's just not being a huge fan of illegal immigration and opposing the woke values. You know, fascism. And the race is said to be neck and neck. And it's made clear throughout the episode that the way election night coverage is handled at a major media network is as much a factor of the wants and needs of the people running the media network as it is of the actual votes, what the people out there actually want. And they set up a fairly interesting scenario. There's a problem. Something is going on in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. One of the voting centers has caught fire. And the story is that they're not going to be able to recover the votes from this voting center. Some 100,000 votes. The quote unquote fascist Mencken is leading the very hip Bernie Sanders clone Jimenez substantially in Wisconsin. But we know Milwaukee votes. Those are going to be primarily Democrats. So you can't call this race tonight. And there's some confusion about who started the fire. Was it protesters from the Mencken side? You know, those violent fascists, or was it protesters from the Jimenez side, like the Antifa types, you know, the actual fascists, because calling yourself anti-fascist doesn't actually make you anti-fascist. Just like calling yourself anti-racist doesn't mean you're actually anti-racist. It's just different branding for racism. And just as a side note, it might be time to start realizing that the people out there who are just anti-woke to the extreme, just talk about wokeness all the time and how against it they are and how we have to oppose wokeness in all its forms all the time. That's the leading cause of everything. Well, they're not that anti-woke either. They're kind of just keeping it alive all the time because they don't want to talk about other things. There's not a person on the planet who's going to accuse me of being woke. And I'm more than happy to talk about those subjects at any length. 
but it's not an obsession like it is for the guys at the Daily Wire who can't talk about anything else, because, of course, if they talked about anything else, then they might eventually run into election fraud, which they've covered up for two and a half years as a favor to the regime. So the voting center in Milwaukee is burning down. Those votes are unrecoverable. We don't know who did it. Was it the Mankin supporters or was it Antifa, the Jimenez supporters? What are we going to do? Well, Mankin's got this big lead in Wisconsin. Could it be overtaken by those votes? The results of which we will never find out? Well, it's a mystery, but they have to do something. You got to tell the people something. After all, you're the news. At that point, there's still a few states left out there. Arizona being one that becomes the final state to call their race. They're worried about making the call first. They want big, big ratings no matter what. They don't want the other outlets to scoop them, the other networks. And they've also got business relationships tied in with both candidates, as you might imagine. Both political parties are intimately connected to all of the mainstream news outlets and a lot of non-mainstream news outlets too, independent news outlets, quote unquote. We see the existence of that relationship in our real lives every day. Now they know that no matter what, Jimenez is going to fight this situation in Wisconsin, but there's not going to be any result from that anytime soon. And so on both sides of the family divide, there are different incentives playing out about whether or not they call Wisconsin for Mencken. One of the siblings does not want them to call Wisconsin for Mencken. She's all in for Jimenez. Her husband is the one who's leading the news network. One of her brothers, Kendall, is on her side about the social stuff and the political stuff, but on the other side with the business stuff. And her other brother, Roman, is with Mencken on the business and the politics. And so the numbers outweigh the Jimenez side and they decide to call Wisconsin for Mencken. They make that decision. The other networks don't. Later on, the other networks call Arizona for Mencken, but they haven't called Wisconsin yet. So the race is still open on the other networks. But if ATN calls Arizona, that ends the presidential race based on their choice to call Wisconsin for Mencken earlier. So now they have the same decision over again. If we call Arizona, that means we're calling the race and we are calling Mencken president. And if we don't call Arizona, the other networks who haven't called Wisconsin could leave this whole race open. And if they leave the race open, then we have to wait till this entire Wisconsin thing plays out. Who knows what manipulations are going to happen there? Who knows what the end result will ultimately be? It's going to be chaos either way. But ATN can be the first major news network to announce that Mencken is the president. So the key thing to understand here is that this whole situation playing out, this is in the hands of some totally unserious, rich, spoiled elder millennials. They, in a room, the four of them, are going to decide who the next president of the United States is, essentially, themselves. And I will say that Succession handled all of this really well, except in the one way that all of Hollywood entertainment always messes these things up, which is by reversing the party roles and the moral implications relative to real life. 
Calling the race for Mencken, whether it was warranted or not, was still seen as the bad people getting their way. The powerful people made a decision for business and elected a fascist because their hearts just weren't big enough. They didn't care about the little people. They didn't care about the social impacts. That was the argument, and it was being made by their sister Shiv, who betrays them all the time and was betraying them, busy betraying them in that very situation. Now, I hope all that made sense. The point here is, this is what actually happened at news networks and specifically Fox in 2020. It was their choice to call Arizona way too early for Joe Biden, making it seem like Joe Biden somehow was not dead in the water, even though Donald Trump was blowing him out in the swing states as everyone went to bed. Decisions were made that not only affected the outcome, but how the public perceives the outcome and the level of fairness the public receives, the level of doubt that they might experience after seeing such extraordinary, unusual, impossible results. It was a pretty good illustration of the fact that this is actually, in some sense, how these things work. The media has a massive impact. There was another interesting scene in the middle of the episode where one of the siblings, the one on Mencken's side, goes and visits Mencken, and Mencken tells him, we think we're going to win, but if we lose, we need to seem like we won, like it was a victory for us to do this well. Can you help us do that? And it was interesting because it highlighted the importance of the narrative even beyond the actual results. He could accept the loss, but he wanted the loss to show incredible momentum. And yes, of course, they set this entire episode up to make people think of Trump and to make it seem like the media would always be on the side of the business guy and always be fighting against, you know, the good hearted, really well-intentioned people on the left who would never exercise undue influence. All of this was very, very wrong. And that's the only way the right wing populist that they call a fascist could possibly win. As you might imagine, the mainstream media picked up on all of this. Vanity Fair wrote an article this morning. The headline of that article is, yes, Succession's election episode was inspired by Trump. CNN had their own. Succession tackles an election night with sobering echoes of reality. The Atlantic called it the dirty, disgusting election fable of Succession by some guy named Spencer Kornhaber. The headline, it's just a fascist president, Kendall. How bad could it be? When the fate of the country depends on a rich boy's childhood trauma, we're all doomed. They want you to know that elections absolutely are not decided this way. And thank goodness, or Trump would be president right now. But the thing is, elections are kind of decided this way. The media interferes with our political process and has over the last few years like nothing we've ever seen before. And it's obvious. It's open. It's right in our faces. Everything from the way COVID was covered, the way mail-in ballots were covered, the process of the election, the Hunter Biden laptop, and everything that's happened since. 
All of that has been an orchestrated act by the media in coordination with big tech, in coordination with corporations and global governing bodies to ensure that the result of the election was as they desired. Now, why am I talking about all this? Am I changing the podcast over so that it just becomes a review of television shows? No, that's what Badlands Story Hour is for. I'm bringing it up so that we can talk about what the media is doing in regards to elections around the world. And as I've said many times, what we are seeing around the world is the same playbook that we're seeing here. We're seeing it play out in all different places at all different times. I've said this over and over again. Yesterday, we had elections in Turkey and Thailand. And a couple of months ago, I was talking about potential U.S. government regime government interference in the election in Nigeria. And that situation is still ongoing. And we'll get to that in a few. But let's talk about Turkey. A few days ago at a large rally for Turkish President Erdogan, he said to the crowd, Biden said that they have to topple Erdogan. I know this. All my people know this. Tomorrow, the ballot boxes will give an answer to Biden as well. Isn't it strange that world leaders are announcing in public the interference in their elections by the United States and the illegitimate president of the United States? Well, this is the Washington Post from May 12th. Will Turkey's elections be free and fair? Here's what to know. Wait a second. Elections? can be something other than free and fair. It's possible to steal elections. Oh, right. It's just other parts of the world. Definitely not here. Definitely not in America. Turkish voters head to the polls Sunday in an election with potentially sweeping ramifications for the fate of democracy in Turkey and beyond. At its heart lies a paradox. Even as their country sinks deeper into authoritarianism, Turks love to vote and have a real chance of reshaping their country's politics. I guess we all learned something new today. Apparently, Turks love to vote. The election appears to be Turkey's most closely contested in years, with opposition party leader Kemal Kilikderoglu polling slightly ahead of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who has presided over Turkey for two decades and consolidated power in his hands. Erdogan has come under fire, for his management of a tanking economy and his response to devastating earthquakes in February that left at least 50,000 people dead and more than a million homeless. So there is some level of chaos in Turkey. I'm sure the global regime has nothing to do with the tanking economy, and I'm sure that they're not just exploiting that earthquake and the ensuing chaos as a political tactic. They would never do that. Facing an unusually unified opposition, Erdogan is vulnerable. Still, he has imprisoned critics and essentially controls the Turkish media and U.S.-based watchdog organization Freedom House ranks Turkey as quote-unquote not free. Analysts say the vote will test whether elections still provide a viable means of political contestation in Turkey or whether they will become a facade to justify an autocratic president's enduring grip. And they go on to discuss some of the Turkish election practices. But let's jump down to a section with the heading, is the voting process secure? 
While allegations of fraud have marred previous votes, elections are still free in that opposition candidates are permitted to run. And despite the erosion of democracy under Erdogan, Turkish civil society has maintained a rich tradition of election monitoring. And they're quoting a woman named Merv Tahiriglu, Turkey's program director at the Project on Middle East Democracy. So obviously quite globalist. I do think it could still be a free election, she said. And by that, I mean that on the day of May 14th, when people vote, that those votes will, by and large, count and the results will be, by and large, correct. What standards? That's because groups, including Turkey's oldest election monitoring organization, Vote and Beyond, send out tens of thousands of volunteers to polling stations across the country to monitor the vote, including the official count. Because the stakes are so high, they're mobilizing at a level I've never seen before, she said. Still, concerns remain. If they lose, Erdogan and the AKP could refuse to accept the results. In late April, Turkey's interior minister appeared to lay the groundwork for such an outcome, warning of a political coup attempt backed by the United States. A delegation from the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe which visited Ankara last month, raised concerns about the logistics of voting in areas devastated by the earthquakes. Will the election be fair? Even if the voting process itself is secure, which would mean a free election in a narrow sense, the vote is unlikely to be fair, analysts say. Freedom House gives Turkey a score of two out of four for the fairness of its elections, citing criticism of the 2018 general elections by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which accused the AKP of misusing state resources to gain electoral advantage and Erdogan of falsely portraying political opponents as supporters of terrorism. You get that? They're definitely not supporters of terrorism in the same way that Barack Obama had nothing to do with ISIS and nothing to do with BLM Antifa. No evidence. Baseless claims. The global regime would never fund terrorism or very peaceful protests or drug cartels for that matter. And they definitely would not fund Nazi battalions in Ukraine, except they're doing all of those things. The judges of the Supreme Electoral Council, known as the YSK, who oversee all voting procedures, are appointed by AKP-dominated judicial bodies and often defer to the AKP, the Freedom House report finds. So anything they do is automatically bad automatically for Erdogan. You see, there's one side that does everything right. It is not the Erdogan side. Everything on the Erdogan side does everything wrong from the perspective of the global state media. Ahead of the election, Erdogan has turned to his tried and true tactic of stoking culture wars, and he has deployed massive public spending this year, offering tax relief, cheap loans and energy subsidies to woo voters. And apparently the people who believe everyone should have welfare and that taxpayers should fund gender transitions thinks that energy subsidies are out of line. Skipping down a bit, given how much control Erdogan has over the judiciary, the bureaucracy, the media and other state institutions, it's impossible for this to be a fair playing field, Tahiriglu said. That doesn't mean the opposition can't win. Major opposition parties of disparate ideological backgrounds have rallied behind Kilik Deriglu, who has sought to circumvent media bias by publishing videos filmed in his modest kitchen to social media. 
Municipal elections in 2019 served as a stress test of the electoral system. Erdogan's party lost nearly all of the country's major cities, including Istanbul, the launchpad for Erdogan's political career. When Erdogan rejected the Istanbul results and forced a revote, his party lost by an even larger margin. Doesn't that sound very American? All of the cities, they went to the opposition. Therefore, those are the places where elections are good, just like in America. Everybody knows that the elections are the best in major Democrat-run cities, and that's how they're always blue. It's because all the people there always vote for Democrats no matter what, and we know that. So every time the election results say Democrat, we think, oh yeah, of course that's right. And the cities are where all the people are, which means the entire nation goes that direction. What does this tell us about elections in Turkey? That they are popular and fraud is not, making heavy-handed election fraud risky for Erdogan. Ganul Tol, director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey program, and Ali Yesiaglu, a history professor at Stanford, wrote in Foreign Policy magazine. So what do we have? Elections being closely monitored by the globalist side. Everything's going good in the big cities where everyone votes for the opposition. Everybody in Turkey wants to vote, so you've got a high turnout, and you've got the power-hungry, autocratic, authoritarian, bad man Erdogan struggling to hold on to power in the face of all the people of the world who just want to protect democracy. So let's go to the Associated Press, Turkey's longtime president to face down main rival in runoff as uncertainty looms. Just want to hit a couple of spots of this. Preliminary results showed that Erdogan won 49.5% of the vote on Sunday, while Kilik Deriglu grabbed 44.9%, and the third candidate, Sinan Ogin, received 5.2%, according to Ahmet Yener, the head of the Supreme Electoral Board. The remaining uncounted votes were not enough to tip Erdogan into outright victory, even if they all broke for him, Yener said. In the last presidential election in 2018, Erdogan won in the first round with more than 52% of the vote. The election results showed that the alliance led by Erdogan's ruling Justice and Development Party looked like it would keep its majority in the 600-seat parliament, although the assembly has lost much of its power after a referendum that gave the presidency additional legislative powers narrowly passed in 2017. Erdogan's AKP and its allies secured 322 seats in the National Assembly, while the opposition won 213 and the 65 remaining went to a pro-Kurdish and leftist alliance, according to preliminary results. So Erdogan's party maintained a substantial majority in their version of the House, but Erdogan couldn't get to 50 percent, just like here in 2020. When Donald Trump, quote unquote, lost, but Republicans still gained everywhere else. Results reported by the state run Anadolu agency showed Erdogan's party dominating in the earthquake hit region, winning 10 out of 11 provinces in an area that has traditionally supported the president. That was despite criticism of a slow response by his government to the 7.8 magnitude earthquake that killed more than 50,000 people. And remember the stories we heard about Trump and the House vote in 2020. 
They had responded so poorly to COVID, but the people supported them despite that. And the article ends this way. The Observer mission also noted the use of public resources, media bias in favor of Erdogan, the criminalization of disseminating false information and online censorship gave Erdogan an unjustified advantage while saying the elections showed the resilience of Turkish democracy. So Erdogan is the government censor there and government censorship over there is bad. Government censorship over here, you have to remember, doesn't happen. And when it does, it's good. So it's the same as it not happening. Now, with that in mind, Twitter Global Government Affairs tweeted this on May 12th. In response to legal process and to ensure Twitter remains available to the people of Turkey, we have taken action to restrict access to some content in Turkey today. The communist media figure Matthew Iglesias wrote, the Turkish government asked Twitter to censor its opponents right before an election and Elon Musk complied, should generate some interesting Twitter files reporting. Elon Musk responded, Did your brain fall out of your head, Iglesias? The choice is have Twitter throttled in its entirety or limit access to some tweets. Which one do you want? Well, that is actually a difficult question, and I don't like that Elon Musk framed it as something simple. There's either free speech or not free speech. There's not mostly free speech. Twitter is helpful because people are on it. But if Twitter's not a free speech platform, then it doesn't matter that people are on it. It is not a net benefit if the information stream is polluted or skewed by some outside force trying to affect political matters. We've already seen what that does in the United States. Now, I don't know exactly what situation they were responding to, and I'm not sure we will ever actually find out, though hopefully we will. Is it possible that the regime was using bot armies and abusing Twitter to create actual disinformation campaigns in the lead up to the election and sowing chaos and discontent, hoping for instability in the fallout of the election that allows them to pursue power in this runoff? Yeah, that's possible, too. The point is that it's a complicated moral question in addition to any practical concerns, and it's not something to simply make light of. If Elon Musk wants to give us the rest of the details on the situation, then maybe we can think about it in a different light. But pretty much in all cases, censorship is bad. I would definitely prefer an argument that what's being called censorship is actually just the elimination of certain forms of mis and disinformation campaigns orchestrated from the top, abusing the Twitter platform to do it. In that case, I might be more open to that explanation. But otherwise, it's just censorship. And Twitter getting involved in the Turkish election at the same time that Elon Musk names Linda Yaccarino as the CEO is bound to draw questions. Again, there's just too much we don't know. We're going to see how this plays out over the next few weeks. As the Turkish election results began coming in in the afternoon yesterday, and the indications were that it would go to a runoff, The first thing I said on Twitter is it looks like Turkey is going to be another Brazil, which means that it's another American 2020 election because they're all the same story. And Erdogan, like Trump and Bolsonaro, 
are both accused of being autocrats and authoritarians by the global state propaganda media. We'll play that out a bit more in just a second. CNN today, why Erdogan's fate matters to Biden and the U.S. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Opposition leader Kamal Kilikderoglu vowed to undertake any struggle necessary to secure rights, law and justice for Turks. Our people should be confident that we will definitely win and we will bring democracy to this country, he said. He also accused authorities of preventing the counting of ballots with the highest percentage of the opposition vote. Erdogan had earlier said he believed final vote counts would show him above 50 percent enough to avoid a potentially risky runoff. So maybe the situation is still developing different sources saying different things. Erdogan has perplexed successive U.S. presidents in recent times. His civility toward fellow strongman Russian President Vladimir Putin has vexed the U.S. as it seeks to save Ukraine's sovereignty following Moscow's unprovoked invasion more than a year ago. Biden's entire presidency has unfolded in the shadow of autocrats, assaults on democracy and aspiring strongman leaders abroad and most remarkably at home. This is just lunacy. His eventual White House legacy will be dominated by his showdown with Putin and reinvigoration of the transatlantic alliance to support democracy in Ukraine with a multi-billion dollar pipeline of aid and weapons. Oh, pipelines. Cute. Then there's a whole section with the heading Biden confronts a threat from democracy at home. And it talks about the Trump town hall and Charlottesville and all of it. They have to remind everybody that Biden is fighting the same thing here in the U.S., But let's skip down. The next section's heading is Biden's global quest to save democracy. A defeat for Erdogan would remove a leader who has worked for two decades to weaken the influence of democratic institutions in Turkey, such as the courts, the press and key economic power bases. In a new term, however, he'd likely further curtail freedoms while continuing to frustrate Western leaders, which means he's not down with the regime program. In recent months, for instance, Erdogan blocked the entry into NATO of Sweden and Finland after their leaders decided to join the alliance following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Oh, now it's starting to make sense. If they can put a regime stooge in as president of Turkey, then Turkey can't block countries like Sweden and Finland and Ukraine from joining NATO. That's why it's so important. It all makes sense now. Erdogan demanded a crackdown on Kurdish exiles in the two Nordic countries whom he considers terrorists. He eventually lifted his veto on Finland, but is still blocking the accession of Sweden. The move is a classic example of how Erdogan advances his own and nominally Turkey's interests, regardless of existing alliance structures and why he has long been a headache for the West. Yes, how odd that he would be more concerned with his and Turkey's interests rather than the interests of the alliance. Ahead of the election, Kilik Deraglu was talking in very similar terms about the need to preserve democracy as Biden does in the U.S. The echo in their rhetoric was yet another sign of how things have changed in that America, the longtime guardian of democracies abroad, 
is now facing some of the same threats to the rule of law at home. Biden offered a quixotic comment about Turkey's elections after encountering a pool of reporters Sunday during a bike ride in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, saying, I hope whoever wins wins. There's enough problems in that part of the world. Oh, nailed it. So the regime needs Turkey. Turkey is a key not only to the Middle East, but to Europe as it's part of NATO. The regime wants Turkey as a proxy in order to exert leverage against Russia. And each and every aspect of this election narrative has its parallels not only in Brazil, as I mentioned, and the United States, but many other countries as well. And so let's look around the world a little more. This is the Washington Post from May 10th, two days earlier than the other article on Turkey. Thai voters could oust military from power, barring election fraud. So election fraud can happen in Turkey and it can happen in Thailand. And they were worried about this before the election. But election fraud could never happen in the United States of America. And if you say that it could happen, you are threatening democracy for a decade. Thailand has been ruled by a conservative military establishment that altered the country's constitution and crushed protests to maintain its grip. So very, very bad, very, very bad people in Thailand are controlling Thailand. We must get rid of those very bad people. Now, in what could be a generation defining election Sunday, the military could be removed from power potentially ushering in democratic reforms in a country that plays an increasingly significant role in shaping norms and allegiances in Southeast Asia. The election could also see the return of Thailand's most famous political dynasty and its exiled patriarch, Thaksin Shinawatra, whose daughter is a leading opposition candidate for prime minister. Polling widely suggests that the opposition, led by Few Thai, Thaksin's party, and Move Forward, a liberal youth-oriented party that has questioned the sweeping power of Thailand's monarchy will dominate when voters brave boiling temperatures to cast their ballots. Less certain is what happens after the voting ends, said analysts, diplomats, and activists in the country. Fears of election rigging have intensified in recent days. Watchdog groups reported that the 2019 election, the first after a 2014 coup, was heavily tilted toward the ruling government led by Prime Minister Prayuth Chan Ocha, and critics warned that it could again find ways of manipulating the results in its favor. I'm going to skip quickly through this article, so if you want to read it, by all means, go ahead. The Washington Post. Even if the opposition is able to make up the votes, however, the military may not cede control, analysts say. This won't be a straightforward election professor of political science at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok says, the question is how crooked can it be? Well, we don't know. Already parties have accused one another of vote buying and the electoral commission appointed by pro-military lawmakers has changed the format of ballots in ways that activists say will be confusing for voters. Allegations of voting irregularities spread over the weekend as early voting began. And by Monday, a hashtag questioning the purpose of the commission was among the top trending topics on Thai social media. Depending on how much the will of the people is subverted, there could be unrest, the professor said. 
in 2020 when the Constitutional Court disbanded an earlier incarnation of the Move Forward Party. Tens of thousands of protesters flooded the streets of Bangkok calling for democratic reform. The military government retaliated with water cannons and mass arrests. And again, you know the good side and the bad side. The activists are always on the good side. The water cannons are always on the bad side. Any attempt to tamp down protests, no matter how violent, is bad. If the people doing the protests are activists from the good side, if the people doing the protesting are from the bad side, then they should be jailed without trial for years and called domestic terrorists. And the legal system and the justice system and the state police forces should be weaponized against those protesters, just like here. Thank goodness in Thailand, those activists doing the protesting are on the good side. So the water cannons, that's a crime against humanity. Jumping down to the end. This year, pro-democracy groups say they've been alarmed by the number of reported irregularities during early voting, including incomplete and mislabeled ballots. The Election Commission chairman acknowledged in a news conference Tuesday that there had been mistakes, but said they were being rectified. He rejected accusations that the commission had any intentions of undermining the electoral process. Many youth activists who marched for democracy in 2020 and 2021 have joined a coalition organized under the banner Protect Our Vote to recruit 100,000 independent poll watchers. Independent, of course. With days left before the country goes to the polls, the coalition was still about two thirds short of their goal. So what happened in the election? Let's get the view from CNN on behalf of the global regime. Record turnout sees Thai voters rebuke military elite as opposition take decisive lead. High turnout elections. It's amazing the results you can get with high turnout elections. Do you remember how many votes we had in 2020? Like 158 million. Only four years earlier, we only had 131 million. And so during COVID, with Joe Biden campaigning from the basement, the electorate increased by 27 million voters. Just amazing that high turnout election we had in 2020. Thai opposition parties swept the board in Sunday's nationwide election as voters delivered a powerful rebuke of the military-backed establishment that has ruled since a 2014 coup, capping years of rising anger over how conservative cliques have governed the kingdom. Turnout was at a record high as voters flocked to calls for change, setting the scene for a potentially dramatic showdown as parties now begin jostling for coalition support to form a government under a junta-era constitution that still gives the military significant sway. With more than 99% of votes counted, the progressive Move Forward Party is projected to win 151 seats with populist Few Thai in second place with 141 seats. That puts the opposition far ahead of the party of incumbent prime minister and 2014 coup leader Prayat Chan-o-cha. They hash out some of the details. I'm going to jump to the end. But this year also saw the emergence of the Move Forward Party as an electrifying new political force. Its campaign included a radical national reform agenda, pledging structural changes to the military, the economy, the decentralization of power, and even reforms to the previously untouchable monarchy. It proved hugely popular among Thailand's young people, 
including more than three million first time voters who felt they had been forgotten through almost a decade of military led or backed rule. Isn't that so great? All those new voters and they came in and voted for the regime's favored party. They must have absolutely crushed it on voter registration. And there's no way that fraud could ever enter the picture at the voter registration stage. The election was the first since youth-led mass pro-democracy protests in 2020 demanded democratic and military reforms, constitutional change, and most shockingly for Thailand, to curb the powers of the monarchy. Kind of sounds a lot like the Sunflower Revolution we talked about last week that happened a few years ago in Taiwan. Now let's move to Nigeria. This is from March 2nd. We talked about this a couple of months ago, but I'm bringing it back up today for a specific reason, in addition to the parallels we can draw from these other elections. Nigeria's OB says he, not Tanubu, won presidential election. This is from Reuters, March 2nd. Nigerian presidential candidate Peter Obi said on Thursday he had won Saturday's election, called Bola Tanubu's victory fraudulent and promised to claim the top job through legal means. The opposition parties said the vote had been rigged after new technology that INEC had promised would make the process more transparent, instead malfunctioned, eroding trust. The good and hardworking people of Nigeria have again been robbed by our supposed leaders, said Obi. He did not go into further detail on his accusations, saying evidence would be presented in court. There have been numerous legal challenges to the outcome of past Nigerian presidential elections, but none has succeeded. The row over the election comes as Nigeria is struggling with Islamist insurgencies, an epic of kidnappings for ransom, conflicts between farmers and herders, high inflation, widespread food insecurity, and a shortage of cash that has caused chaos in people's daily lives. The weekend election was neither free nor fair. Atiku, one of the other candidates, told journalists, adding he would contest the results in court. The processes and outcome were grossly flawed and must be challenged by all of us. And here we have a reversed situation. Record low turnout. Both candidates questioned figures showing a low turnout at a time when there was a record number of registered voters. INEC said total votes cast were just under 25 million out of 87 million people with voter identity cards and eligible to vote, giving a turnout rate of 29%. Tinubu was declared the winner with 8.79 million votes. Nigeria has a population of more than 200 million. Election observers from the European Union and the Commonwealth reported a range of problems with the election, including widespread technical failures of systems designed to prevent manipulation and improve transparency. They criticized INEC for poor planning, but did not allege fraud. So what's up with INEC? This is from their Wikipedia entry. In the buildup to the 2015 general elections, the INEC under JEGA introduced smart card readers for the verification of voters and their voting cards to minimize incidents of fraud and rigging. The introduction of card readers was hailed by many Nigerians, but a group of four minor political parties who claimed to be acting on behalf of 15 political parties kicked against it and urged the INEC to suspend the use of card readers in the 2015 elections. 
the 2015 general elections were adjudged the most credible, free and fair elections since the return of democracy in 1999. The INEC was accused of widespread electoral irregularities in the 2019 presidential elections, including cases of ballot paper unavailability, smart card readers malfunctioning, and large cancellation of valid votes. The main opposition, People's Democratic Party and its presidential candidate, challenged the results of the election in court. So all of those problems with the INEC system are very similar to the problems that we see here with our election machines. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing how so many former British Commonwealth nations have extraordinary election problems, always following the period when they separate from the Commonwealth. The stories play over and over and over again, all around the world at different times. This is from Reuters 10 days ago, May 5th, 2023. Nigeria begins hearing presidential election challenge next week. Nigeria's election tribunal will on Monday start hearing opposition petitions challenging president-elect Bola Tinubu's victory in the disputed February presidential vote, court records showed on Friday. Tinubu, from the ruling All Progressives Congress Party, defeated his closest rivals, Atiku Abu Bakar of the People's Democratic Party, and Labor Party's Peter Obi, who alleged fraud and have launched a court challenge. So Tanubu is in the All Progressives Congress Party, the party holding power. And we got an extraordinarily low turnout election, whereas the autocratic authoritarian powers in Turkey and in Thailand, they are in control. And in those elections, we get an extraordinarily high turnout election. What happened in Brazil in 2022? This is CNN. But despite the huge turnout from his supporters, his victory was by a narrow margin. According to Brazil's electoral authority, Lula da Silva won 50.9% of the vote and Bolsonaro received 49.1, denying him his second term. So when the good guys are in power, it's a low turnout election. When the bad guys are in power, it's a high turnout election because the entire country wants to get rid of them. You see, the bad guys, they never have numbers in either scenario. The regime needs to win an election from the party in control. Well, you got to have high turnout. The regime wants to protect its control in the face of the opposition. Well, then you have low turnout. So you can reaffirm for the public the thing everybody knows that people are very frustrated with the party in power. But then you just convince them that the opposition party, the party that wants to rise to power, well, they're just so bad, so offensive, so dangerous that despite how badly things are going, people just don't get out and vote. It's going to present an interesting dynamic for them to attempt to handle next year because no one likes Joe Biden, assuming he's still the candidate, but they don't exactly have the option of giving him 90 million votes or 100 million votes or whatever he would need to beat Donald Trump in a way that anyone would actually believe. So what do you do? Create the narrative conditions for a low turnout result and sell that to the people. Sure, no one likes Joe Biden, 
But Donald Trump, he was just too toxic. No one could vote for him. You have to believe us. It was just a low turnout year. But back to Reuters on Nigeria. There have been numerous legal challenges to the outcome of previous Nigerian presidential elections, but none has succeeded. The hearing will be before the Court of Appeals judges who constitute the tribunal. Under Nigeria's electoral laws, the first day of hearings will see candidates, lawyers agree on the witnesses and evidence to be used during the proceedings. Atiku and Obi want the tribunal to invalidate Tanubu's victory, arguing the vote was fraught with irregularities, among other criticisms. Tanubu, who is set to be sworn in on May 29th, says he won fairly and wants the petitions dismissed. Obi campaigned as an outsider, galvanizing young and first-time voters, and had appeared to throw the contest wide open, raising some voters' hopes for change after years of hardship and widespread insecurity under outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari, 80, a former army general. But Obi came in third after Tanubu and Atiku, both of whom had powerful political machines and decades of networking behind them. And the totals in this three-person race were relatively close. And who knows how many votes may have been destroyed, creating such a low turnout. But Tanubu was said to have won, reported to have won 37%, Atiku 29%, and Obi 25%. So these are not enormous margins, and they are certainly within the realm of possibility considering the extent of machine manipulation and other kinds of fraud that we are accustomed to. If anything parallel to what happened here is happening over there, a few hundred thousand votes, a million or so votes, that's not impossible. Now, this is from The Guardian on Wednesday, April 12th. Bola Tanubu to become Nigeria's president despite court challenges, says minister. So this is before the court challenges begin. The Nigerian president-elect Bola Tinubu will take office on schedule on 29 May. Despite court challenges to the election result, the country's information minister has said on a visit to the UK to counter claims that the 25 February election in Africa's most populous country had been fixed. Lai Mohammed said there was no basis for an interim government to be formed until the court challenges could be resolved. So the information minister traveled to the UK, you know, the motherland for some reason. And a month before the court challenges are to begin, the Guardian announces to the world that no matter what, Tanubu is going to be the guy. He's the guy. Doesn't matter what the courts say. There's not going to be an interim government until we figure it out. He's just the guy. Sorry. That's how these things go. We've declared him the winner. Everybody knows he's the winner. We told the whole world. Now he's going to be there no matter what. So let's go back to the Washington Post one more time. This is from May 12th, 2023. That's three articles in the Washington Post disseminating the central narrative about election fraud and rigged elections in three different countries in two days, Nigeria, Thailand, and Turkey. A court in Nigeria has been asked to stop the planned inauguration of the country's next president and to extend the incumbent's tenure, court documents obtained Friday show. Five Nigerians made the request to the federal high court in Abuja, 
arguing that President-elect Bola Tinubu was illegally declared the winner of the February 25th presidential election and therefore should not be sworn into office on May 29th. The petition is among several challenges to the ruling party's victory and raised concerns in the West African nation about a possible constitutional crisis should President Mohamedou Buhari remain in office until the case is decided. Chuk's Nawachiku, the plaintiff's lawyer, said Tanubu being declared president-elect was unconstitutional because he failed to win at least 25% of the votes cast in Abuja, Nigeria's capital city. To be elected president, the Nigerian constitution requires a candidate to win both the highest number of votes overall and not less than one quarter of the votes in each of at least two thirds of the country's 36 states and Abuja. The interpretation of that constitutional provision has remained a subject of debate in Nigeria. There can be no swearing in of anyone who has not satisfied the provisions of the constitution. We are asking for a declaration that the president remains in office until the issue of succession is sorted out, Nwachiku told the Associated Press. Nigeria's two main opposition parties previously contested the all-progressives Congress Party's presidential victory, alleging the election results were rigged. While the opposition's election challenge was not expected to stop Tanubu's inauguration, analysts warned that extending Buhari's tenure could create a crisis for a country with a checkered history of long military rule and electoral violence. So Tanubu is declared the winner despite not fulfilling all of the constitutional requirements for being the winner. It's being challenged in court. His two opponents both claim that the election was filled with irregularities and fraud. And this is the election where Stacey Abrams went to Nigeria to oversee the election where we had that video from Anthony Blinken and Samantha Power and Linda Green Thompson talking about how they were going to help secure Nigeria's election. Well, today, Anthony Blinken, the illegitimate secretary of state, the man responsible for the letter from 51 former intelligence officials declaring the Hunter Biden laptop story to be Russian disinformation. That Anthony Blinken, the guy who other countries won't talk to, even though he is supposedly the legitimate secretary of state in the United States, he tweeted, we have imposed visa restrictions on specific individuals who undermined the democratic process during Nigeria's 2023 elections. We remain committed to supporting Nigerian aspirations to strengthen democracy and the rule of law. And all of this ties into the story about Joe Biden released by The Sun a few weeks back based on reporting and analysis from Marco Polo on the Biden laptop. And I'm just going to read a bit of it. Two of under Biden's closest business associates lined up a potential billion dollar payout from a highly controversial lawsuit, which threatens to destroy Nigeria's economy. The U.S. Sun can exclusively reveal. Bombshell leaked documents suggest that Jeffrey Cooper, 53, and convicted fraudster Devin Archer, 48, personally stand to gain hundreds of millions of dollars in one of the biggest international arbitration cases of all time. And top secret records 
show that both Archer and Cooper were in direct contact with President Joe Biden, 80, and his scandal hit son, Hunter, 53, as they became embroiled in the case. Currently being fought in the UK, the extraordinary legal battle has pitted an engineering firm registered in the British Virgin Islands against the government of Nigeria, Process and Industrial Development, P&ID, is seeking a massive multi-billion dollar payout from the African nation over a failed January 2010 gas supply and processing deal. A London arbitration tribunal in 2017 found P&ID's favor and ordered Nigeria to pay $6.6 billion, which is now ballooned to $11 billion with interest. But the country refused to do so and challenged the decision. The case went to trial at London's high court earlier this year, and a judgment is expected in the coming weeks or months. If P&ID is awarded the full amount, it would force Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation and the sixth in the world, to hand over what is thought to be the equivalent of almost one third of its total foreign currency reserves. Furious Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari described the case as a scam in a speech at the United Nations in 2019. And lawyers for the country argued in court that the 20 year gas deal was a sham and that PNID had later bribed Nigeria's legal team in the arbitration to sabotage its strategy. PNID strongly denies that the original deal was a sham and described Nigeria's claim of bribery as manifestly false and a pure piece of invention with no evidence to support it. Now, previously unseen documents leaked to investigative group Marco Polo by a whistleblower and seen by the U.S. Sun show that Archer and Cooper, who both have deep business ties to the Bidens, are directly involved in trying to secure the payout for P and ID. So once again, not only does Nigeria have those regime ties and the leader of Nigeria matters in terms of the global regime, Joe Biden has a personal stake in this one as well. Now, I don't know how many foreign elections I have covered on this podcast in the last two and a half years, but it's a lot. 10, 15, 20, I don't know, but it's a lot. And it's always, always the same story. All the story elements are the same parallels to not only America, but other countries as well. The story keeps playing out over and over again in different places at different times. This is the playbook. This is the strategy. You can see it around the world. Even the Washington Post admits that foreign elections can be influenced by election fraud. Prior to 2020, everybody just admitted that here too. all sorts of power players in the Democrat Party believed that Trump stole his election somehow or the machines were the problem. You can watch the documentary Kill Chain on HBO. I think it's still up there on HBO. You can see people like Hillary Clinton and Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris and various experts talking about how the machines are vulnerable and open to manipulation. We know that from Dominion's own discovery documents in the case against Fox News. None of this is new. All of it is known. The global regime is trying to amass power everywhere throughout the world, and they are more than willing to steal elections in order to do it. We're just supposed to pretend it doesn't happen here, but it does happen here. And pretty much everyone has begun to understand that it happens here. Now, there are people who will lie about it. They'll say it doesn't happen here. They'll say 
that Donald Trump lost those elections. MAGA lost those elections for Republicans. And I'm about to play a video that's going to hurt your feelings. But then again, I've been saying since November 2020 that if you aren't standing up and calling out election fraud often and actively participating in real solutions, not cover-ups, not fake solutions, it's probably because you're benefiting from the election fraud. Well, guess who has just taken on the mainstream regime narrative in full? Well, I look at the last however many election cycles, 2018, we lost the House, we lost the Senate, 2020, Biden becomes president, or no, excuse me, we lost the Senate in 2020, Biden becomes president, and has done a huge amount of damage, very unpopular in 2022, and we were supposed to have this big red wave, and other than like Florida and Iowa, I didn't see a red wave across this country, and so I think the party has... Uh, developed a, a culture of losing. I think that there's uh, not uh, accountability. And I think in Florida, we really showed what it takes uh, to not just win, win big, and then deliver big. And ultimately, when you're doing all this, uh, what results are you producing for people? That's really what matters. Uh, you can sit there and talk about cable news, social media, all these other things that, that, that people are fixated on. And for me, it's like, okay, what's that true north? Uh, you obviously got to win, otherwise you don't get a ticket to the dance. But once you do that, how are you going to be able to actually bring about big change to make people's lives better? Next. So there it is. Ron DeSantis thinks our elections are very safe and very secure. We got the proper winners and we can analyze it as if our elections are very safe and very secure, which means that we lost in 2018, lost in 2020, lost in 2022. What's the common connection? Not the regime, not the uniparty right, not election fraud. No, it's Donald Trump, even though Trump wasn't running in 2022 and the GOP establishment actively worked against Donald Trump's candidates in 2022. If you are a regime Republican governor, you have one of the easiest jobs in the world. All you have to be is controlled opposition. You can have a regime Republican state house installed below you and they can implement uniparty right initiatives that sound good to the public, but don't actually do anything to push back against the regime. And everyone will give you credit for it. All of the media will think you're great. The left will call you dangerous. The right will call you a hero. And all you have to do is sign regime legislation that comes to your desk. Now, I'm more than willing to keep giving Ron the benefit of the doubt and assume that there's something else going on here, but it's getting pretty difficult. He is now saying the worst, most dishonest, most regime favorable things that you can say in American politics. There is no claim that the regime cares about more than the claim that they are running free and fair elections. People used to get furious at me in 2021 for doubting Ron DeSantis's greatness back then. But I was right then. And it sure as hell seems like I'm right now, to be honest. It would be some kind of minor miracle at this point for Ron DeSantis to redeem himself in regard to the election fraud issue. And obviously then in regards to Donald Trump, this is as bad as it gets when messaging about our elections. He just accepts them all as legitimate. 
There are open and active cases still about the 2020 election. For instance, Garland Favorito's case is still marching on in Fulton County, Georgia. Carrie Lake is going to court this week. I'm sure we'll discuss this more throughout the week about the ballot signatures and about machines that were tested and then changed and then not retested. All of those machines and all of the votes cast on them are invalid just by that alone. You have to actually follow the law. Now, do I know that the situation is going to be properly rectified? Of course not, at least not in the short term. But this is all there. And Ron DeSantis is now actively denying it in public as Florida's Republican House is passing bills that weaken election integrity in Florida, centralize control, make elections more opaque, and they're going to let Ron run without resigning from his office. Now, that could be more concerning, but Ron continues to slide in the polls. Even Newsweek has headlines out there about how Ron's run is completely over before it's begun. He is down 70 to 14 in the most recent polling from Kentucky. And I get that it's disappointing. I get that people loved Ron DeSantis and thought that Ron DeSantis was our new standard bearer and our new hope going into the future. Well, it looks like he's not. And people are going to have to deal with that. People can not like Trump all they want, but that is an emotional reaction. If your dislike of Trump is more important than everything Trump's done, the fact that he kept us out of wars, the fact that the economy was incredible, you got issues. If you think that disliking Trump and liking DeSantis is more important than the fact that DeSantis totally ignores election fraud and proceeds as if there's nothing wrong, I honestly don't know what to say to you. But let's think back to that episode of Succession from last night, where the media not only has a role in deciding who wins the election, but they also craft the narrative to maintain the result required by that media company and on behalf of the regime. Would anyone in the world believe that Joe Biden got 81 million real lawful American votes if it weren't for the media, if it weren't for tech censorship, if it weren't for all the chaos caused in the run up to that election, COVID, BLM, all the changes to how elections are run with the mail-in balloting, the drop boxes, etc. No one would believe that. But the media supports the narrative. The media helped make Joe Biden the winner, not only on election night with the malfeasance on election night, but also a few days later when they just declared that Joe Biden was the winner. If the media hadn't done all that, there's no way Ron DeSantis could even make such an absurd statement as he just did today, because it would be obvious to everyone that he is accepting election theft on behalf of the regime in order to make that point a political point against his opponent, the rightful winner of the 2020 election, Donald Trump. Now, before I go, I just want to mention that John Durham's final report has been released this afternoon. Obviously, I haven't read it. It was just released within the last few minutes. Sean Davis from The Federalist has a short Twitter thread that I'll read just to give you some info, and then we'll get into this more this week. Special Prosecutor John Durham concluded that, quote, neither the U.S. nor the intelligence community 
appears to have possessed any actual evidence of collusion in their holdings at the commencement of the crossfire hurricane investigation. So all of that was based on zero evidence. More from Durham's 306 page report, which Federalist has obtained. FBI records prepared by Peter Strzok in February and March 2017 show that at the time of opening Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI had no information in its holdings indicating that at any time during the campaign, anyone in the Trump campaign had been in contact with any Russian intelligence officials. According to the 306-page Durham report, the Obama FBI tried and failed to obtain a FISA warrant to spy on George Papadopoulos. Durham concluded the Steele dossier was a complete joke and that the FBI failed to corroborate any of its key claims. Our investigation determined that crossfire hurricane investigators did not and could not corroborate any of the substantive allegations contained in the Steele reporting. And that is a quote directly from Durham. So we'll hear quite a bit more about that this week. We'll get into it on the show. But for now, I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!